Act Three, Scene Two of No Thoroughfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens. Act Three, Scene Two. On the mountain. The road was fair enough for stout walkers, and the air grew lighter and easier to breathe as the two ascended. But the settled gloom remained as it had remained for days back. Nature seemed to have come to a pause. The sense of hearing, no less than the sense of sight, was troubled by having to wait so long for the change, whatever it might be, that impended. The silence was as palpable and heavy as the lowering clouds, or rather cloud, for there seemed to be but one in all the sky, and that one covering the whole of it. Although the light was thus dismally shrouded, the prospect was not obscured. Down in the valley of the Rhone behind them, the stream could be traced through all its many windings, oppressively sombre and solemn, in its one leaden hue, a colourless waste. Far and high above them, glaciers and suspended avalanches overhung the spots where they must pass by and by. Deep and dark below them, on their right, were awful precipice and roaring torrent, tremendous mountains arose in every vista. The gigantic landscape, uncheered by a touch of changing light or a solitary ray of sun, was yet terribly distinct in its ferocity. The hearts of two lonely men might shrink a little, if they had to win their way for miles and hours among a legion of silent and motionless men, mere men like themselves, all looking at them with fixed and frowning front. But how much more when the legion is of nature's mightiest works, and the frown may turn to fury in an instant! As they ascended, the road became gradually more rugged and difficult. But the spirits of Vendale rose as they mounted higher, leaving so much more of the road behind them conquered. Obenreiser spoke little, and held on with a determined purpose. Both in respect of agility and endurance were well qualified for the expedition. Whatever the born mountaineer read in the weather tokens that was illegible to the other, he kept to himself. "'Shall we get across to-day?' asked Vendale. "'No,' replied the other. "'You'll see how much deeper the snow lies here than it lay half a league lower. The higher we mount, the deeper the snow will lie. Walking is half wading even now, and the days are so short. If we get as high as the fifth refuge, and lie to-night at the hospice, we shall do well.' "'Is there no danger of the weather rising in the night?' asked Vendale anxiously, "'and snowing us up?' "'There is danger enough about us,' said Obenreiser, with a cautious glance onward and upward, "'to render silence our best policy. "'You have heard of the bridge of the Ganther?' "'I have crossed it once.' "'In the summer?' "'Yes, in the travelling season.' "'Yes, but it is another thing at this season.' 
with a sneer as though he were out of temper. "'This is not a time of year or a state of things on an alpine pass that you gentlemen holiday travellers know much about.' "'You are my guide,' said Vendale good-humouredly. "'I trust to you.' "'I am your guide,' said Obenreizer, "'and I will guide you to your journey's end.' There is the bridge before us. They had made a turn into a desolate and dismal ravine, where the snow lay deep below them, deep above them, deep on every side. While speaking, Obenreizer stood pointing at the bridge, and observing Vendel's face with a very singular expression on his own. "'If I as guide had sent you over there in advance,' and encourage you to give a shout or two, you might have brought down upon yourself tons and tons and tons of snow. That would not only have struck you dead, but buried you deep at a blow. No doubt, said Vendale, no doubt, but that is not what I have to do as guide, so pass silently, or going as we go our indiscretion might else crush and bury me. Let us go on. There was a great accumulation of snow on the bridge, and such enormous accumulations of snow overhung them from protecting masses of rocks that they might have been making their way through a stormy sky of white clouds. Using his staff skilfully, sounding as he went, and looking upward with bent shoulders as it were to resist the mere idea of a fall from above, Obenreizer softly led. Vendale closely followed. They were yet in the midst of their dangerous way when there came a mighty rush, followed by a sound as of thunder. Obenreizer clapped his hand on Vendale's mouth and pointed to the track behind them. Its aspect had been wholly changed in a moment. An avalanche had swept over it and plunged into the torrent at the bottom of the gulf below. Their appearance at the solitary inn not far beyond the terrible bridge elicited many expressions of astonishment from the people shut up in the house. "'We stay but to rest,' said Obenreizer, shaking the snow from his dress at the fire. "'This gentleman has very pressing occasion to get across. Tell them, Vendale.' "'Assuredly, I have very pressing occasion. I must cross.' "'You hear, all of you.' My friend has very pressing occasion to get across, and we want no advice and no help. I am as good a guide, my fellow-countrymen, as any of you. Now give us to eat and drink. In exactly the same way, and in nearly the same words, when it was coming on dark and they had struggled through the greatly increased difficulties of the road, and had at last reached their destination for the night, Obenreizer said to the astonished people at the hospice, gathering about them at the fire, while they were yet in the act of getting their wet clothes off and shaking the snow from their clothes, "'It is well to understand one another, friends all. This gentleman—' "'Has,' said Vendale, readily taking him up with a smile, "'very pressing occasion to get across. Must cross. You hear?' He has very pressing occasion to get across. Must cross. We want no advice and no help. 
I am mountain-born and act as guide. Do not worry us by talking about it, but let us have supper and wine and bed. All through the intense cold of the night, the same awful stillness. Again at sunrise, no sunny tinge to gild or redden the snow. The same impenetrable waste of deathly white, the same immovable air, the same monotonous gloom in the sky. Travellers! A friendly voice called to them from the door after they were afoot, knapsack on back and staff in hand as yesterday. Recollect! There are five places of shelter near together on the dangerous road before you, and there is the wooden cross, and there is the next hospice. Do not stray from the track. If the torment comes on, take shelter instantly. The trade of these poor devils, said Obenreiser to his friend, with a contemptuous backward wave of his hand towards the voice. How they stick to their trade! You Englishmen say we Swiss are mercenary. Truly it does look like it. They had divided between the two knapsacks such refreshments as they had been able to obtain that morning, and as they deemed it prudent to take. Obenreiser carried the wine as his share of the burden, Vendale the bread and meat and cheese, and the flask of brandy. They had for some time laboured upward and onward through the snow, which was now above their knees in the track, and of unknown depth elsewhere and they were still labouring upward and onward through the most frightful part of that tremendous desolation when snow began to fall. At first but a few flakes descended slowly and steadily. After a little while the fall grew much denser, and suddenly it began without apparent cause to whirl itself into spiral shapes. Instantly ensuing upon this last change, an icy blast came roaring at them, and every sound and force imprisoned until now was let loose. One of the dismal galleries through which the road is carried at that perilous point, a cave eked out by arches of great strength, was near at hand. They struggled into it, and the storm raged wildly. The noise of the wind, the noise of the water, the thundering down of displaced masses of rock and snow, the awful voices with which not only that gorge, but every gorge in the whole mountainous range, seemed to be suddenly endowed, the darkness as of night, the violent revolving of the snow which beat and broke it into spray, and blinded them, the madness of everything around insatiate for destruction, the rapid substitution of furious violence for unnatural calm, and hosts of appalling sounds for silence, these were things on the edge of a deep abyss to chill the blood, though the fierce wind, made actually solid by ice and snow, had failed to chill it. Obenreiser, walking to and fro in the gallery without ceasing, signed to Vendale to help him unbuckle his knapsack. They could see each other, but they could not have heard each other speak. Vendale complying, Obenreiser produced his bottle of wine and poured some out, motioning Vendale to take that for warmth's sake, and not brandy. Vendale again complying, Obenreiser seemed to drink after him, and the two walked backwards and forwards, side by side, 
both well knowing that to rest or sleep would be to die. The snow came driving heavily into the gallery by the upper end at which they would pass out of it, if they ever passed out, for greater dangers lay on the road behind them than before. The snow soon began to choke the arch. An hour more, and it lay so high as to block out half the returning daylight. But it froze hard now as it fell, and could be clambered through or over. The violence of the mountain storm was gradually yielding to steady snowfall. The wind still raged at intervals, but not incessantly, and when it paused the snow fell in heavy flakes. They might have been two hours in their frightful prison, when Obenreiser, now crunching into the mound, now creeping over it with his head bowed down and his body touching the top of the arch, made his way out. Vendale followed close upon him, but followed without clear motive or calculation, for the lethargy of Baal was creeping over him again, and mastering his senses. How far he had followed out of the gallery, or with what obstacles he had since contended, he knew not. He became roused to the knowledge that Obenreiser had set upon him, and that they were struggling desperately in the snow. He became roused to the remembrance of what his assailant carried in a girdle. He felt for it, drew it, struck at him, struggled again, struck at him again, cast him off, and stood face to face with him. "'I promise to guide you to your journey's end,' said Obenreiser, "'and I have kept my promise. The journey of your life ends here. Nothing can prolong it. You are sleeping as you stand.' "'You are a villain. What have you done to me?' "'You are a fool. I have drugged you. You are doubly a fool, for I drugged you once before upon the journey.' to try you. You are trebly a fool, for I am the thief and forger, and in a few moments I shall take those proofs against the thief and forger from your insensible body. The entrapped man tried to throw off the lethargy, but its fatal hold upon him was so sure that, even while he heard those words, he stupidly wondered which of them had been wounded, and whose blood it was that he saw sprinkled on the snow. "'What have I done to you?' he asked, heavily and thickly. "'That you should be so base a murderer!' "'Done to me? You would have destroyed me, but that you have come to your journey's end, your cursed activity interposed between me and the time I had counted on in which I might have replaced the money. Done to me, you have come in my way, not once, not twice, but again and again and again. Did I try to shake you off in the beginning, or no? You were not to be shaken off. Therefore you die. Here. Vendale tried to think coherently, tried to speak coherently, tried to pick up the iron-shod staff he had let fall, failing to touch it, tried to stagger on without its aid. All in vain, all in vain. 
he stumbled and fell heavily forward on the brink of the deep chasm. Stupefied, dozing, unable to stand upon his feet, a veil before his eyes, his sense of hearing deadened, he made such a vigorous rally that, supporting himself on his hands, he saw his enemy standing calmly over him, and heard him speak. "'You call me murderer?' said Obenreizer, with a grim laugh. "'The name matters very little, but at least I have set my life against yours, for I am surrounded by dangers, and may never make my way out of this place.' The torment is rising again. The snow is on the wind. I must have the papers now. Every moment has my life in it. Stop! cried Vendale, in a terrible voice, staggering up with a last flash of fire breaking out of him, and clutching the thievish hands at his breast in both of his. Stop! Stand away from me! God bless my Marguerite! Happily she will never know how I died. Stand off from me, and let me look at your murderous face. Let it remind me of something left to say. The sight of him fighting so hard for his senses, and the doubt whether he might not for the instant be possessed by the strength of a dozen men, kept his opponent still. Wildly glaring at him, Vendale faltered out the broken words. "'It shall not be the trust of the dead, betrayed by me, reputed parents, misinherited fortune, see to it.' As his head dropped on his breast, and he stumbled on the brink of the chasm as before. The thievish hands went once more quick and busy to his breast. He made a convulsive attempt to cry, No! Desperately rolled himself over into the gulf, and sank away from his enemy's touch, like a phantom in a dreadful dream. The mountain storm raged again, and passed away. The awful mountain voices died away. The moon rose, and the soft and silent snow fell. Two men and two large dogs came out at the door of the hospice. The men looked carefully around them, and up at the sky. The dogs rolled in the snow and took it into their mouths and cast it up with their paws. One of the men said to the other, We may venture now. We may find them in one of the five refuges. Each fastened on his back a basket. Each took in his hand a strong spiked pole. Each girded under his arms a looped end of a stout rope, so that they were tied together. Suddenly the dogs desisted in their gambols in the snow, stood looking down the ascent, put their noses up, put their noses down, became greatly excited, and broke into a deep, loud bay together. 
the two men looked in the faces of the two dogs. The two dogs looked, with at least equal intelligence, in the faces of the two men. Asiko then, help! To the rescue! cried the two men. The two dogs, with a glad, deep, generous bark, bounded away. Two more mad ones, said the men, stricken motionless and looking away in the moonlight. Is it possible in such weather? And one of them is a woman. Each of the dogs had the corner of a woman's dress in its mouth, and drew her along. She fondled their heads as she came up, and she came up through the snow with an accustomed tread. Not so the large man with her, who was spent and winded. "'Dear guides, dear friends of travellers, I am of your country. We seek two gentlemen crossing the pass, who should have reached the hospice this evening.' "'They have reached it, mademoiselle.' "'Oh, thank heaven, oh, thank heaven!' "'But unhappily they have gone on again. "'We are setting forth to seek them even now. "'We had to wait until the torment passed. "'It has been fearful up here.' "'Dear guides, dear friends of travellers, "'let me go with you. "'Let me go with you for the love of God. "'One of those gentlemen is to be my husband. "'I love him oh so dearly, oh so dearly.' You see, I am not faint. You see, I am not tired. I am born a peasant girl. I will show you that I know well how to fasten myself to your ropes. I will do it with my own hands. I will swear to be brave and good, but let me go with you, let me go with you. If any mischance should have befallen him, my love would find him, when nothing else could— on my knees, dear friends of travellers, by the love your dear mothers had for your fathers. The good, rough fellows were moved. After all, they murmured to one another, she speaks but the truth. She knows the way of the mountains. See how marvellously she has come here. But as to monsieur there, mademoiselle? Dear Mr. Joey, said Marguerite, addressing him in his own tongue, you will remain at the house and wait for me, will you not? If I'd a knowed which of you two recommended it, growled Joey Ladle, eyeing the two men with great indignation, I'd fight you for sixpence, and give you half a crown towards your expenses. No, miss, I'll stick by you as long as there's any sticking left in me. "'and I'll die for you when I can't do better.' "'The state of the moon rendering it highly important "'that no time should be lost, "'and the dog showing signs of great uneasiness. "'The two men quickly took their resolution. "'The rope that yoked them together was exchanged for a longer one. "'The party were secured, Marguerite second, and the cellarman last, "'and they set out for the refuges.' The actual distance of those places was nothing, the whole five and the next hospice to boot being within two miles, but the ghastly way was whited out and sheeted over. They made no miss in reaching the gallery where the two had taken shelter. The second storm of wind and snow had so wildly swept over it since that their tracks were gone. But the dogs went to and fro with their noses down, 
and were confident. The party stopping, however, at the further arch, where the second storm had been especially furious, and where the drift was deep, the dogs became troubled and went about and about in quest of a lost purpose. The great abyss being known to lie on the right, they wandered too much to the left, and had to regain the way with infinite labour through a deep field of snow. The leader of the line had stopped it, and was taking note of the landmarks, when one of the dogs fell to tearing up the snow a little before them. Advancing and stooping to look at it, thinking that some one might be overwhelmed there, they saw that it was stained, and that the stain was red. The other dog was now seen to look over the brink of the gulf, with his forelegs straightened out lest he should fall into it, and to tremble in every limb. Then the dog who had found the stained snow joined him, and then they ran to and fro distressed and whining. Finally they both stopped on the brink together, and setting up their heads, howled dolefully. "'There is someone lying below!' said Marguerite. "'I think so,' said the foremost man. "'Stand well inward, you last two, and let us look over.' The last man kindled two torches from his basket and handed them forward. The leader taking one and Marguerite the other, they looked down, now shading the torches, now moving them to right or left, now raising them, now depressing them, as moonlight far below contended with black shadows. A piercing cry from Marguerite broke a long silence. "'My God! On the projecting point where a wall of ice stretches forward over the torrent! I see a human form!' "'Where, mademoiselle, where?' "'Over there, on the shelf of ice below the dogs!' The leader with a sickened aspect drew inward, and they were all silent. But they were not all inactive, for Marguerite, with swift and skilful fingers, had detached both herself and him from the rope in a few seconds. "'Show me the baskets. These two are the only ropes?' "'The only ropes here, mademoiselle, but at the hospice.' "'If he is alive, I know it is my lover. He will be dead before you can return. Dear guides, blessed friends of travellers, look at me, watch my hands. If they falter or go wrong, make me your prisoner by force. If they are steady and go right, help me to save him.' She girded herself with a cord under the breast and arms, and formed it into a kind of jacket, she drew it into knots, she laid its end side by side with the end of the other cord, she twisted and twined the two together, she knotted them together, she set her foot upon the knots, she strained them, she held them for the two men to strain at. "'She is inspired,' they said to one another. "'By the Almighty's mercy!' she exclaimed. "'You both know that I am by far the lightest here.' Give me the brandy and the wine, and lower me down to him. Then go for assistance and a stronger rope. You see that, when it is lowered to me, look at this about me now. I can make it fast and safe to his body. Alive or dead, I can bring him up, or die with him. I love him passionately. Can I say more?' 
they turned to her companion, but he was lying senseless on the snow. "'Lower me down to him,' she said, taking two little kegs they had brought, and hanging them about her, "'or I will dash myself to pieces. I am a peasant, and I know no giddiness or fear, and this is nothing to me, and I passionately love him. Lower me down.' "'Mamselle, mamselle, he must be dying or dead.' "'Dying or dead, my husband's head shall lie upon my breast, "'or I will dash myself to pieces.' "'They yielded overborne. "'With such precautions as their skill and the circumstances admitted, "'they let her slip from the summit, "'guiding herself down the precipitous icy wall with her hand.' and they lowered down, and they lowered down, and lowered down, until the cry came up, Enough! Enough! Is it really he, and is he dead? they called down, looking over. The cry came up, He is insensible, insensible. but his heart, heart beats. beats, it beats against mine. It's against mine. How does he lie? The cry came up, Upon a ledge of ice, it has thawed beneath him, and it will thaw beneath me. Hasten, hasten! If we die, I am content. Am content. One of the two men hurried off with the dogs at such topmost speed as he could make. The other set up the lighted torches in the snow and applied himself to recovering the Englishman. Much snow chafing and some brandy got him on his legs but delirious and quite unconscious where he was. The watch remained upon the brink, and his cry went down continually. Courage! They will soon be here! How goes it? And the cry came up. His heart still beats against mine. I warm him in my arms. I have cast off the rope, for the ice melts under us, and the rope would separate me from him. From him. But I am not afraid. Not afraid. The moon went down behind the mountain tops, and all the abyss lay in darkness. The cry went down. How goes it? The cry came up. We are sinking lower. But his heart still beats against mine. Beats against mine. At length the eager barking of the dogs and a flare of light upon the snow proclaimed that help was coming on. Twenty or thirty men, lamps, torches, litters, ropes, blankets, wood to kindle a great fire, restoratives and stimulants came in fast. The dogs ran from one man to another, and from this thing to that, and ran to the edge of the abyss, dumbly entreating, Speed! 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 The cry went down, Thanks to God! All is ready! How goes it? The cry came up, We are sinking still, and we are deadly cold. His heart no longer beats against mine. Let no one come down to add to our weight. Lower the rope only. The fire was kindled high. A great glare of torches lighted the sides of the precipice. Lamps were lowered. A strong rope was lowered. She could be seen passing it round him and making it secure. The cry came up in a deathly silence. Raise softly, softly. 
they could see her diminished figure shrink as he was swung into the air. They gave no shout when some of them laid him on a litter, and others lowered another strong rope. The cry again came up into a deathly silence. Raise! Raise! Softly! Softly! But when they caught her at the brink, then they shouted, then they wept, then they gave thanks to heaven, then they kissed her feet and they kissed her dress, then the dogs caressed her, licked her icy hands, and with their honest faces warmed her frozen bosom. She broke from them all and sank over him on his litter, with both her loving hands upon the heart that stood still. End of Act 3, Scene 2, and End of Act 3 Recording by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk